0: Well, good morning, it is good to be uh, with you on this uh, holiday weekend, and uh, weather getting a little bit colder, and I know um, if your family's in like mine, it seems like everywhere around you, somebody's sick, and uh, so we pray, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this in the weeks to come, but there's some really good things that God seems to be doing, um, even as he brings healing um, to others, even within our very midst, even the last few days, um, just just great to watch God, do. doesn't always do it. Um, But it is good, and uh, we want to celebrate when it happens. I want to pray uh, one more time, not that Sarah's wasn't good enough. It was. I want to pray one more time just as we uh, get ready to dive in and uh, and look at his word. I am, in a good way, excited and burdened with this particular passage. And uh, so I want to pray for us. Heavenly Father, I ask now that you would open our eyes and that you would uh, allow us to see what it is that you want us to see. Lord, would you uh, make our hearts in such a position that we would receive from you what it is that you're saying. So as always, Lord, if there's anything that I would share this morning that is not true, then I pray that you would forever remove it from our memories. But whatever it is from you and whatever you would say uh, to us today, Lord, I pray that you would help us. Would you bury it so deep within our hearts that we would become doers of your word rather than just hearers only? Lord, unless you do that, it'll be just another talk we hear. Uh, and so, um, uh, use us for your glory and your great honor. Pray all this in Christ's name, Amen. Now, it was in case you were not here. Thank you, those of you who are joining us online, even watch now. I think you can go back and watch it. And uh, what a great time to celebrate, Bob! Uh, we had this last Sunday night, and uh, I already miss him. And I'm just glad that uh, we all got a chance uh, uh, to be here and to be able to tell them that. Now, here's what I want to do. As briefly as I can, I want to remind us, we actually have been in a series, and that series is on 1 Peter. Now, we took a little pause, a little break, and that started with the Advent season, so we devoted some messages to that. And then we had a few messages in there that they stood alone each week on their own. So I want to do this as briefly as I can. The book of 1 Peter is written by a guy named Peter. Now, Peter was in the inner circle of Jesus's friends. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that he's extra special. special doesn't mean that he's, uh, It means that Jesus had Peter as one of his closer friends in life. And so Peter got to watch a lot. Now, here's the other great thing about Peter. Peter is a guy that we all um, really enjoy. Meaning this, do you know anyone in your life, it may be you, who opens their mouth and then thinks later, Uh, Don't ask my mom. She would not tell you that's true of me. Ever since I was born, my mouth has been opening, and then I have been thinking. Peter, God, we understood, but hear this. Peter knew what it was like to betray Jesus and then to have Jesus still call him. Don't miss that. Peter is not writing this book from a perspective of If you guys would just get to be a little bit more like me, then man, would this church thing be really great. Peter's saying, I know what it's like to not be worthy to fail every single day. So Peter is writing to us in this book. He's writing about life in the midst of an environment, a culture that looks on at their faith, this new Christian faith they were trying to live out, this sect, if you will, of Judaism that is centered around a man named Jesus. And people looked at it rather strangely. Now, Nero is in power when Peter is writing this book. Most likely, he is not doing all of the gnarly things that he would do in the not-too-distant future, so they probably aren't experiencing the severe persecution that would come uh, uh, later. Um, but there is persecution nonetheless. There is People are looking, they're ostracizing folks, they're, they're leaving them, et cetera. Um, so Peter's writing to say, get prepared. In chapter 5, which we have not gotten to yet, we will, in a few weeks down the road, in chapter 5, verse 12, it gives us really what is the summary and the purpose of the book. He says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting, declaring that this is the grace of God, so stand firm in it. So this is not every week, but what have we said as we've gone along? First Peter, this book, tells us that when faith gets difficult, we can stand firm. Not just when life gets difficult, when our faith gets difficult, when it becomes difficult to believe. 1 Peter tells us that we can stand firm. A living hope is an active hope. We've looked and said that Jesus will never stop building his church. And then here in the most recent uh, uh, sermons that we've preached, we said this. A godly life is more compelling than persuasive lips. Now, an outline of the book could be done as follows. You'll see it up on the screen, but the introduction is just the first two verses of chapter one. The next section says, believe what it is that God has done. Set our minds to embrace the truth. The section that we are in now goes from uh, chapter two, verse 11, all the way through chapter four, verse 11. And we can title it this, live for the glory of God. That's where we are currently. What does it mean to live for the glory of God? I want to remind you, Peter talked very specifically about submission. We said this, it's our favorite word in America. Everybody loves the thought of submission. Submit to what? He says. Remember, it started out with the government. We all are called to submit to a government. Are there limits to that? Of course, there are limits to that. But what we ought to do as Christians is not try to first figure out what the limits are, we ought to first seek to submit. And then, as time goes on, when when they call us to submit to something that violates the principle of the will of God, we don't do it. Submit to government. Then it moves in and says this. How about in the work environment? I was talking about slaves and masters. While it's not an exact one-to-one, it's the closest thing we have in our culture, and that is our employers. We're called to submit at work to be good employers, not doormats submit, seek the greater good. He then brings it into the home. You see the progression, macro picture, government, work. He then brings it into the home and talks about the relationships there. And in all three of those, what he's reminding us of this, a godly life is far more persuasive than lips that just speak. So having finished that part on submission, he now moves us in and notice what he says. In chapter 3, if you are able, would you stand as we read in chapter 3, just, what's this, 4 or 5 verses, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. is against those who do evil. You may be seated. I want to part summarize and then part read to you something that a wonderful theologian, a man named Thomas Schreiner, says about this particular section right here. He says that Peter in verse 8 now is going to give us five characteristics of God's people that bring about blessing. It's going to bring about blessing to others. And it's also going to bring about blessing in our own lives. And you'll see that as the passage unfolds. But he says this. In the Greek, there are five adjectives without any verbs. The ESV supplies the verb have, which captures well the implied imperative. Meaning this, when Peter was writing this, He does not have have in the original instruction to the audience. He just starts listing off these characteristics. And what is implied is that we are to take these on. Why would Peter leave that out? It helps to bring about the force. Listen. Probably the implied imperative comes from the word that is to be. And the text would read this. You must be harmonious. Harmonious. And so when we look at all five of these things collectively together, we're going to look at them individually here in a moment, but when we look at them all together, it would lead to smooth relationships within the church and with outsiders as well. Now, what does he say? What is Shriner trying to get across here? Do not look at each one of these characteristics and isolate them only and say, hey, you know what? I want to do that one. But that one right there, I don't know. I don't like that. So I'm going to ignore that. But this one is good. In fact, I'm going to teach my kids to do this one in particular. All five of these go together. And here's what he's saying. We must have these characteristics. What is Peter writing? Peter's writing to a group of people who are struggling to live out their faith in the face of a hostile crowd. Hostile meaning not necessarily that they hate the church. They're hostile towards anyone who says we must submit to Christ. How do we live this out effectively inside of our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, in the government in which we are, are, God has called and set over us? How do we live this out? What is necessary? It's what's on the inside. Would anybody disagree with this statement? Division brings damage. Husband and wife, how have you experienced division? Has it done wondrously good things for your marriage? How about in the workplace, division? Has it done great things to increase the relationships amongst your coworkers? How about with your kids? How about on any sports team that you have? How does division work when the players just simply cannot seem to get on the same page? Take any organization you want, at any level, any number of people, as long as there are two or more, division brings damage. But unity, ah, oh, unity brings blessing. When there is unity amongst a husband and a wife, doesn't it somehow or another scene? it doesn't take away all the other problems in life, but doesn't it somehow or another put them in perspective when we say we can attack this together. How about when you and your kids are on the same page? When you know that each other is for each other? Can you handle difficult? How about any sports club, any, Business, any political organization, any organization at all, when there is unity, not uniformity, not where everyone is just merely a robot saying the same thing. When there is true unity, we are after the same thing. When there is unity, there is blessing. How do we get unity? Watch what he says. The first characteristic that he says here is unity of mind, that verb, I'm sorry, the word could be translated, um, sharing the same thoughts and attitudes. It is thinking harmoniously. Now, again, I want to point this out. What this does not mean is that conflict is never going to occur within the body of Christ in the context of what Peter is talking about here. He's writing to the church, and he is applying this across the board. It is not to be only applied within the church. It is to start within the church, and then the church is to be the model, the example that the world should look at and say, oh, that's how it is that we get on the same page. Because within the church are a whole bunch of different people with different backgrounds and experiences, different levels of talent, different intelligences, socioeconomic backgrounds, races, etc. There are differences all over the map, but we are all unified around something, aren't we? So what is it then that we are unified around? How does the church seek unity? I know what it is. We seek unity when we have the exact same doctrine. That's it, isn't it, David? How many different denominations do we have just in America? You don't want to know. How many different Presbyterian denominations do we have? Is it the main line? Is it the offshoot of that? Is it the offshoot of that or the offshoot of that or the offshoot of that? Or you go to this line. Is it the offshoot of this or that or that? I'm not making these numbers up, okay? Unfortunately, I know way too much about Presbyterian history. The Baptists. How many different titles can we put in front of Baptists? Is it primitive? Is it free will? Is it unity? How many? Almost all of this is divided over doctrine. I doubt very seriously we're going to find unity amongst doctrine. Unless we make our doctrine about something we can all be unified around. It is the person of Jesus. Jesus is the tuning fork. Jesus is the one whom we must become unified around. The purpose of, and whatever title you want to put in front of the Baptist church, is the same as whatever division of Presbyterian you want to get to. The purpose is that Jesus is honored and magnified and glorified and highly lifted up because he's the the only one that can actually do anything about our sin. I can have sympathy for your sin. I can feel sorry for your sin. I can't take away your sin. Jesus can. So if we're unified around him, then we can be unified. But I don't think we're ever going to be unified around what specifically this verse in Matthew says, that the kingdom of heaven is advancing forcefully and forceful men advance it. Nobody knows what that means. And there's about 12 different versions of of what it could be. We're not going to be unified around that. We are going to be unified around this. Jesus can save you from your sins. It does not mean that conflict will never happen, but when it does, the people that are involved will seek unity. And if unity cannot be reached, then we will separate in a God-honoring, Christ-centered, Spirit-filled manner. We're not going to take shots at one another as we part ways. We're not going to point a finger. We're going to honor each other with our words and with our deeds in public and in private. When separation is absolutely necessary, and remember, Paul and Barnabas separated. When it's necessary, do it in a manner that honors Jesus. Do everything we can to not get to that point, but we may reach that point. I'm reminded of music here. The word that he uses in here is uh, harmoniously, thinking harmoniously. And I'm I'm reminded of this. Now, I do not have the ability to sing harmony. I'm sure that somewhere along the way I probably could if somebody showed me what the harmony was. But evidently, there's a difference in the notes. And I don't remember if it's four or five or six or eight or however many it is. I just know there's a difference. in the number of notes that goes, so one note goes here, one note goes here. And now if these two are not in harmony with one another, it sounds really bad. It's irritating to the ears. But when it is a harmony off of the melody, it sounds really, really sweet and good. Whenever she sings up here, and I tell her this um, often, Amy Vernon, when she sings the doxology, she hits this high note right there at the end. And I love to be right here when it's sung because I go, It's not the same note I'm singing. She's different. But when we sing in heart, we can be different and it can be glorious if we're all centered in on the same purpose. So here's a question for us Is there anyone with whom you need to reconcile? Reconciliation won't happen by accident. It will occur here at Wildwood when the both of you pursue the person of Christ and his vision and mission for us here. Have unity of mind. The second thing he says is sympathy. Sympathy means readiness to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. 1 Corinthians 12 comes to mind when Paul talks about this body. There are many parts of it. They're different, they all have the same part. And then remember later on he says this, when one part suffers, it all suffers. And when one part is honored, we all rejoice with the honor. Sympathy means the idea is to care deeply about the needs, the fears, the joys, the concerns, the dreams, the desires, etc. of others in everyday life. Not just merely sitting for a moment, and, and acknowledging that someone has dreams, it is actually trying to do the best I can in that conversation at minimum to, to, to give myself fully to someone else, listening fully, that I step in to where does they are and I try to feel what it is that they're feeling. And I want to support them in this endeavor. I know so few people who do this naturally and who do it well. My wife is one of them. Her ability to care for others and to step into their skin and to feel what it is that they feel um, is remarkable. Now, the protecting side of that is this, is that she can take on the pain of literally everyone in the room. And that's a heavy burden. But if you have this gift, oh, sharpen it. If you don't have this gift... Work on it. Practice sitting, listening, placing yourself in their shoes. Train your mind to be present where you are and to think, God, would you help me to see what they see and feel what they feel? Question, who cares about you currently this deeply? Who feels what you feel? Who is interested in what you're interested in because you're interested in it? Who do you care about this deeply? Can you readily and quickly name someone that feels this way um, towards you, etc.? And can you name someone that you are doing this with? If not, please hear this. It's not going to happen by accident. You're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to intentionally pursue it. And you might have to do it with someone that currently you may not know as well. So you have to take a risk. Step out, get to know them. We must strive for this. We must strive for unity and we must strive for sympathy. The third one he mentions is brotherly love. The word is the word that we get the city of Philadelphia, it's a brotherly love. It's affection. Peter draws our attention to relationships that are in the church that are are going to function far more like a family. I don't know how you currently view the relationships within this church. I don't know how you currently view relationships with uh, uh, with whatever church you've been involved in. I don't know how you view them. Do you view them um, in such a manner that you would see this as this is family, and so therefore I'm not going to give up on family? Or do you view it as, eh, you take it or leave it? And if it's beneficial for me for a while, you know, will stick around. But the second it's not beneficial for me, the second that they start talking about stuff I don't really wanna hear about, the second they start challenging me, I'm gonna go find somewhere else. This is a family. And inside of every family, there are fights, there are tears, there is laughter, there is ease. There is pain, there is toil, there is play. We could go on and on. Every family has highs and lows, et cetera, but it's family. And growing up, I couldn't stand my little brother. But deep down inside, oh man, did I really love him. And I love to pick on him because he's my little brother. Now he's bigger. Inside of this church, Peter says, Wildwood, function like a family. Care deeply about one another. You treat each other as if you are related. When we brought home um, the youngest two kids in our uh, home back in 2009, We had one child that was not quite used to being, um, I'm sorry, who got used to being the baby. And so, uh, so much attention was focused around him. And he got to, to be and experience in that life. And it was very easy for him. And everybody wanted to hold him and play with him, et cetera. And then these two other critters come into our home, like overnight. And it took a little while for him to get adjusted to that. And you could see it. He wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do with these new kids. The older ones he liked because they played with him. And, yes, they picked on him. But they played with him. The new ones he wasn't quite sure. But it didn't take long. Once they got a little bit older and could speak and talk, and once they began to play together and fight together and apologize and and laugh and cry and and, and push and shove, once he began to do all those things that brothers do, you, you could see. He loved having an expanded family. Do you want your family to expand? Do you want your church family to expand, or do you want it to be just exactly who it's always been? What Peter is trying to get the church prepared for here, and when he's writing this in the first century, is we have a mission. And that mission is to get into the hands of everyone who will listen that Jesus Christ can save you from your sins. And every family is going to grow, and with that comes growing pains. And it's not going to happen easily. Can I can ask you this, who is it that is among you that currently stands on the fringes but needs to be brought inside of our church? Who is it that's currently coming around, Standing here trying to figure out who needs to be brought further in. Is it in your small group that they need to be brought further in? People don't move from the fringes into being part of a family by accident. Adoption isn't easy, but man, has it been worth it. We must look to invite. Whoever the person is, him or her, into our lives that is standing on the fringes, we must make sure that there is room for them to grow. He then says, We are to have a tender heart. Now, in here, Paul is referring specifically to the emotions that are stirred and cause action to follow. Another word that is used um, in here, uh, um, um, the same word is used in other places um, as compassion. It's used of Jesus as he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, and then he moved towards action. The point may, be, may well be that we need to learn lo- to love Lowe's. The point may well be that we need to learn to love those that are in differing circumstances than we are, as well as those who are in similar circumstances as we are. That as we see, we are not just stirring much, we're not just putting ourselves in their shoes. We're not just feeling what it is that they feel, but now we're actually moving to action as we see and feel. Question, am I living a life that is slow enough to see others and feel and then help wherever it's needed? Finally, he says, a humble mind. We've said this many times here. A humble mind does not mean that I think too low of myself, nor does it mean I think too highly of myself. It means that we think accurately of ourselves. We think of ourselves as we really are, precious and valued by God. To not see that is to not see the truth of the scriptures. So precious that Jesus decided to give up his very life, breathe his last, be separated from God, receive the wrath of God on our behalf. We are that precious to him. And somehow or another, simultaneously, I am not God's gift to humanity. There are plenty of others who can do exactly what I do and do it a whole lot better. But yet somehow or another, God has made me uniquely me. He's made you uniquely you. And I know this, Wildwood would not be Wildwood if you were not here. We need you. I need you. You need me. You need the person sitting three rows in front of you and two people down. You need the people sitting up in a dark balcony. You need the people that will be coming in the next service. You need the folks that are watching online. We need, we're, we're, no individual is the cat's meow. And yet, incredibly valued and precious. So here's the question for us. What influences me the most when it comes to developing a portrait of myself? What is it I'm going to regularly and consistently that helps me develop a portrait of me and a portrait of others? Can I suggest that there is one verse you commit to memory and think about it regularly and meditate on it often? Genesis chapter 1. God says this, let us make man in our image. And so he made the male and female in his image. You are made in the image of God. And so is the sinner who hates God currently. And both of us need Jesus. These are the characteristics. This is what he spends the most amount of time on. This next section, verse 9, gives us the mission of God's people. Now notice what he says here. He starts out by telling us something not to do. He tells us, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. This is one of those passages you go, man, I like the way that this sounds. God, don't ask me to put it into practice though. I want my brothers and sisters on the other side of the world to do this. And I want to pray for them and send them money and, and let's help equip them. Um, but, but God, right here now today, you're telling me not to return evil for evil, not to return insult for insult. So when someone says something about me, about my wife, about my kids, about you, about my beloved Crimson Tide, whenever they say something bad about it, you're telling me not to respond in kind? Because all they're going to do, God, is continue on. And at some point, you got to punch the bully in the nose. Yeah? But don't make that your starting point. Make your starting point, I want to take, I want to receive. I want to take this for as long as God will give me the grace to take it. And at some point, yeah, yeah, we do have to fight back. Um, governments, for example, should not use this as other governments are invading. Um, it would not have been a good idea back in the 40s for us to say, we're not going to repay evil with evil, so we're just not going to invade Germany. Now we got, we, I think you know the balance, don't you? The starting point is this do not seek to bring harm to someone else when they bring harm to you emotionally, verbally. Instead, what he says is, now what does he mean by bless? On the contrary, bless. For to this you are called by blessing. Peter means that believers, get this, are to ask God to show his favor, his grace, and to put it upon those who are doing the direct insulting and reviling against us. Now, what I'm going to return to that is, God, would you bless them? Would you cause them to see you for who you really are? Would you bring about good things in their life? Edmund Clowney says this, the blessings with which a Christian meets insult cannot, of course, pronounce God's favor on those who blaspheme his name. In the psalm that Peter quotes, we read that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Our blessing of evildoers and persecutors must take the form of a prayer that seeks their salvation and good. Yet this does not reduce blessing to mere well-wishing words. He then goes on to give the example of Stephen. When Stephen was being stoned, what did he pray? He prayed the same thing that he knew Jesus had prayed when Jesus was on the cross. Nelson Stephen saying as I'm dying lord god would you somehow other bring them to a saving place now who does that jesus and the followers of jesus who live by the power of jesus but i'll guarantee you this left to myself i'm not going to do that He then says that we will receive a blessing. When we do this, he says that you're um, uh, you called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, very quickly, what does this all wrap up? How does it look? He finally gives us the, the basis for his instructions right here. He's going to quote um, one of the Psalms. He says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, it is a good desire that we should want to see good things. How do we define a good life? How do you define the good life? Some define it with material blessing. Nothing wrong with material blessing. If you have two summer homes and you have a home here and you have four cars, great There's nothing inherently good or inherently bad about that. It brings certain joys and it brings certain challenges. If you don't have a car and you don't have a home, it's neither good, inherently good, nor inherently bad. It has some certain advantages and some certain challenges that come with it. But how do you define the good life? scriptures would define the good life in this way let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit let him turn away from evil and do good and let him seek peace and pursue it with our mouths and with our actions let us say god don't let me go down this road of bring about damage and harm to me to others etc please god don't let me go down this road but instead, God, use my mouth for healing and use my hands in such a manner to be constructive rather than destructive. I want to walk in a path that does not bring harm, but rather it brings good. That's the good life. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. God is looking at you. He Sees you. You may may not feel as though you have been, been seen at any point ever in your life. You may feel as though you have been overlooked at every single stage in your journey as a human being. Your father and mother may not have ever really truly seen who you are. You may have been ignored and dismissed. My friends, in, in grammar school, in middle school, in high school, you may be married to a person right now who doesn't really know who you are. I assure you of this, though. The Lord's eyes are on you. He sees you because he is looking, and his life is not lived too fast that he doesn't have time to feel what you feel, see what you see. And I assure you, he is always moved and stirred to action. It may not be the action you necessarily want right now, but he's moved. The eyes of the Lord are on his people. The ears of the Lord are open to hear their cry. No matter how soft your whisper is in a prayer, no matter how loud your shout is, the Lord hears you because he sees you. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro, and his ears, they are attentive. You may not feel it, but I assure you, by his word, I tell you the truth. He sees you and he hears you. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What is it that God has called us to here as a result of this today? I, I want to tell you, I know this, division brings damage. And unity brings blessing. So here's my question for all of us today. Whether that is on a micro scale or a macro scale, here at Wildwood, in your family, in your business, wherever it may be, in our country, are you going to seek Unity? Or are you going to tolerate division? Because blessing does not happen by accident. It happens when we pursue the person of Jesus. And then God, by the power of his spirit, pours out blessing. Oh, Wildwood. Seek unity. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who it is that you are and what it is that you have done. And Lord, thank you for Peter all these years ago writing these words down for us. We believe that you inspired him to write down exactly what it is that you wanted him to write down. And so today, Lord, I pray once again, as we have heard um, this morning, uh, would you put into our hearts what it is that you are calling us to. I pray that we would not get carried away with guilt and shame. Would you not let us um, have someone else define for us what your calling is? But I pray that you would give us a ten of ears to hear you. And then you would give us the boldness and the courage to follow you. We love you. We are grateful for you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.